Welcome to The Rot Focus, a podcast for rotters, newbies, and veterans, and everyone in between. We're hosted by M.A. Lee with the assistance of Remy Black and Edie Rooms, all from Rotters Inc. Books. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Each episode lasts as long as it takes to fix a quick dinner, grab a short commute, or take a brisk walk. Resources and links are in the show notes. Visit us at therockfocus.blogspot.com. Now, on to this week's episode. We've reached the last major section of Discovering Characters, which I call Decor, our special touches for characters and the sliding scales. We begin with lessons for myths primarily Greek mythology, that huge melting pot of myths. Here in modern times, we can barely see the distinctions in cultures that compose the myths. Time blurred these distinctions for us. And now we look back and think one culture, when it is many. The myth of Medea alone offers the collision of four different cultures. Then we'll take an extended look at something I developed after years of teaching mythology. It combines the traits of the epic hero with archetypes into what I called the Greek heroic pattern. We'll look at the best example from classical antiquity, then offer seven others that move from ancient times to our modern ones. The addition of the Greek heroic pattern will have this episode running longer than usual, so we better start now. Special Touches for Characters, with Lessons from Myths. The earliest stories followed characters, often real people plunging into out-of-the-ordinary events, who made mistakes from which they recovered, wounded, broken, transformed, greater. The earliest myths explain nature, Zeus's thunderbolts, Sumerian flood stories, Chalak, whose staff froze the ground for winter. Ancient people may have wished to have some measure of control over the vagaries of weather and nature, so they created gods and goddesses, capricious of personality. We have many small myths of these deities interacting with each other and with mortals. Some myths explain natural events. Some merely present human behavior. Apollo, when struck by one of Cupid's arrows, chases the nymph Daphne, who had vowed never to marry. When she cannot escape him, she begs the river god Peneus to save her. He transforms her into the laurel tree, a story that teaches the mysterious power of lust, the endless pursuit of sexual harassment, and the drastic measures necessary to escape harassment. Yes, even then. Aurora, who loved a prince of Troy and asked Zeus to give him immortality, yet she forgot to ask for eternal youth for the man she loved. To ease his aged suffering, Tithonus was transformed into a grasshopper, a warning to consider carefully when requesting great gifts. More than one world myth carries this warning. The Japanese Izanami, fatally burned when she gave birth to a fire god, whose husband Izanagi didn't wish to let her go until he saw what she had become 
when she left the underworld. So he sealed the door. When she vowed to kill a thousand people each day, he countered with a vow to create 1,500, an early example of the destruction-creation duality in myths. The Banshee, Banshee, who warned of impending death and escorted loved ones into the afterlife, a terrifying event, can have mysterious foreshadowing, yet even death can have offered comfort. These earliest myths offer entertainment with their life lessons. Gold is not as valuable as love. Escape requires transformation. Long-term consequences outweigh short-term benefits. Sacrifice is often necessary in order to cause transformation. The Greek myth of Persephone, the Greek Proserpina, gives a first indication of the protagonist's development through the goddess Demeter, the mother grieving for her missing daughter. When she cannot find her daughter in the upper world, her grief causes her to shirk her responsibilities of growing food for mankind. Her stubborn stance against Zeus and Hades gods more powerful than she is, eventually wins her daughter back, but only for a portion of the year. In this myth, we have one of the earliest examples of the weak standing against the strong and of winning the impossible, even if the victory is not complete. Although the myth of Persephone and Hades is taught as the way the seasons developed, it is much more than that. Our guide to understanding is Demeter. In abridged versions, the goddess is nothing more than the stereotypical mother. We have to read the complete myth to understand that her nourishing nature requires persistent determination, not only to help plants grow and fruit, but also to win back the daughter of her heart from the callous and unthinking bargaining of her brothers. Most deities worldwide are immortal. Only a few die. Is Anami, the Egyptian Osiris, although Isis restores Osiris to a type of life. The Norse pantheon is distinguished by having gods and goddesses who know that they will die and anticipate the day of Ragnarok, the day of destruction. For the Norse, honor becomes how a person faces death rather than trying to escape it. Yet even in reading of Odin or Thor, we see limitations in the basic characters. We have motivations and goals, yes, but we lack a fully rounded individual. For writers, the all-powerful gods are limiting. It's the hero myths that offer for writers a complete development of the protagonist's personality, dual-sided, honorable yet tempted, strong yet weak, containing tendencies for both good and evil. The hero's choice of actions and reactions is determined by which wolf is fed, which relates to the ancient Greek myth of two wolves fighting. Gilgamesh is one of the earliest examples of a dual-sided hero. Like most early heroes, he is two-thirds god and one-third human. At the beginning of the epic, he is a cruel dictator. Through his friend Humbaba, he discovers what death means. He flees from the idea of death and embarks on a long journey to find eternal life. The Noah figure of Utnapishtim gives him two ways to avoid death. Unable to do either, he returns home, transformed by his fear and by his experiences. The heroes of Greek myth, not the gods and goddesses, provide more guidance for writers. 
while the heroes may have extraordinary talents and gifts from the gods. Hercules' strength, Perseus's mirror-like shield from Athena, the moly given to Odysseus, these gifts and talents do not prevent their mistakes. A latter hero like Jason, favored by the goddess Hera, achieves great things with the help of other heroes, yet he is clearly self-centered and not concerned with trivialities like murder in his quest to become ruler. Antigone becomes more than a simple story of a sister seeking a proper burial for her brothers. The drama conflicts honor with power, ethics with laws, and personal choices with political requirements. Euripides' Medea becomes a character study of pure evil and the three men who did not anticipate evil's determination to achieve her goals. The Iliad gives us the honorable Trojans at war with the dishonorable Greeks. Agamemnon's depravity causes him to kill his own daughter. Ajax's rage causes him to attack his comrades, and only insanity stops his slaughter. Achilles desecrates his enemy's body. Homer's great epic is dated historically at 1200 before Common Era, composed around 850 BCE. Told and retold long before Homer approached the legend, the blind poet is credited with centering the story around Achilles' growing wrath, with flashbacks that reveal the rage and bloodlust insanity that drives all of the Greeks, except for poor Odysseus, trapped to serve with men who seem to have lost all honor in their rage and greed. The Norse myth of Signy, daughter of Volsung and twin of Sigmund, presents a woman as vicious in her determined revenge as Medea, yet with more justifiable reasons for the evil she commits. She doesn't permit the weakness of her physical form to limit the strength of her devious revenge. Myths offer many types of protagonist, the sacrificial hero, the lawless yet ethical protagonist, the anti-hero who stands alone against the masses, the futility of action, and the evil hero. These myths provide a greater development than modern comic book action-adventure heroes. When we writers add elements of duality, sacrifice, and transformation, we are delving to the hearts of our characters. Revelatory events should present more than goals and motivations. And special touches with simple sliding scales can open windows to the hearts. As writers, we take these special touches, apply them to our characters and our stories, and we create a many-layered rich text for our readers. The Greek heroic pattern is a model of the incipient protagonist. Over and over in mythological stories, a hero meets each of the nine elements that form the pattern. Curiously enough, the Greek heroic pattern is consciously and unconsciously used by writers throughout the millennia. First, the hero is descended from the gods. Yes, I know the hero may be the son of a god, or he may have extraordinary strength or any one of several talents. However, consider that while the Greeks told fantastical stories, those stories were grounded in solid reality. Heroes traveled to real places. They interacted with people who lived, for whom we have historical records, 
or were themselves in the historical record as having lived. So the Greek hero is often a real and therefore ordinary person. As descended from the gods, it's a direct descent in the early myths. Later stories usually add that the hero is of historical or legendary significance, of national importance or heroic stature, a person both great and brave. Second, the hero is directly affected by a prophecy. Whether he or she wants to or not, they're forced to follow the lines of action that the prophecy sets forward. The hero may try to avoid the prophecy, but it will come true and every element will be fulfilled. Third, for the hero, what can be perceived as a good trait becomes his downfall. The ancient Greeks understood and accepted that the hero is no more than an ordinary man with all his advantages and with all his faults. Fourth, the hero is obsessed with honor and glory. He wants something to survive after he has left this existence. There is nothing wrong with pride. However, the protagonist will have too much pride, hubris. Fifth, the hero must descend to the underworld. To achieve honor and glory, the hero will perform courageous deeds revealed through a willingness to risk danger and death. And there is no more dangerous place than entering the underworld, facing death and the ruler of the dead. Sixth, supernatural intervention will occur in the story. Gods will intervene or send their minions to act on their behalf. Gods may help the hero, but also hinder or hurt him. Gods may provide gifts, weaponry, and necessary information. They might use other supernatural means to test the hero. Seventh, the hero must confront a woman who can destroy him or save him. Women are not weak but dangerous, and they should be approached cautiously. Eighth, monsters will be encountered. In ancient times, the monsters begin as fantastical, strange creatures who threaten individuals or a community. Gradually, the monster actually becomes a person behaving in an unnatural and therefore monstrous manner. The monster can be one of four types, descended from the gods and corrupted in some way, cursed. The monster may be protecting a sacred place, such as a sanctuary or temple or a holy passage. The god may have gone wrong. It's a god punished for evil and cursed into a monstrous form. Or fourth, the monster may be sent as a curse on mankind to punish a society for evil deeds, including arrogant pride. Ninth, the setting of the hero's story will be vast in scope. In ancient times, when the majority rarely traveled outside their district, the hero's lone venturing beyond the known borders is a sign of his extraordinary valor. The best example for ancient Greek mythology is Perseus. He's the son of Zeus, conceived in a shower of gold. Also, he has Zeus in his ancestry, as well as Poseidon. Second, the prophecy concerning Perseus is that he will kill his grandfather. We have two attempts to avoid the prophecy. The grandfather attempts to prevent Perseus' conception by locking his mother into a tower and second, when she does conceive and gives birth, the grandfather sets Danae and her baby adrift in a box. The prophecy eventually is fulfilled. Although raised, celebrated, and married in a foreign land at the myth's end, 
Perseus decides to return home to become reconciled with his grandfather who had tried to kill him. The grandfather disappears when he hears that Perseus is coming. No one knows where he is. Perseus participates in an athletic contest. His discus goes into the crowd. Coincidentally, he kills an unknown man who turns out to be his grandfather. Third, Perseus has both good and bad traits. He is brave and intelligent, and he acts on his own initiative. He's eager to jump into new experiences. But in his willingness to jump, he never considers consequences. Too quickly, he volunteers to get the best wedding gift ever, which he discovers is the head of the Gorgon Medusa. Too quickly, he decides to try out throwing the discus, and it goes straight into a crowd and kills his grandfather. Fourth, Perseus wants to become heroic. He vows to kill what other men have feared, the Gorgon Medusa. He travels alone to strange lands. He confronts strange creatures. His journey takes a long time as he travels to places to find the location of the Gorgon's island. And his return journey takes him to Ethiopia, where he finds the girl of his dreams chained to a rock. Fifth, Descent to the Underworld. The Underworld can be represented by the encounter with the Grey, the three swan-like Grey sisters who share one eye. Or it could be the visit to the Hyperboreans, the nymphs of the North, a land of ice and snow, or as Edgar Allan Poe called it, the Ultima Thule. Frozen Hyperborea would be a completely strange world, seemingly dead, for someone who had been raised around the equator and who did not know about the frozen winters of the north. Perseus tricks the gray women into giving him the information he needs. The nymphs give him three gifts, winged sandals, a wallet that fits whatever is placed into it, and a cat that turns the wearer invisible. The Hyperboreans, sometimes called the Stygian nymphs, which connects him to the underworld realm of Hades, and their gifts to Perseus are associated with Hades in other stories. Six, supernatural intervention. Perseus is assisted by Hermes, who provides him with an unbreakable sword. Athena gives him her polished breastplate, which he will use as a mirror to reflect the Gorgon Medusa as he strikes her head off. Seventh, dangerous women. Of course, the Grey, the Nips of the North, the Gorgons. Andromeda, chained to the rock, could also be considered dangerous. To save her, he must defeat the Kraken. Eighth monsters, we have the Grey Women, we have the Gorgons, and we have the Kraken, the sea monster. And not a vast setting. We begin in Argos. We go to Seraphos, Delphi, Dodona, where they eat nut flour. We go to the island where the Grey Women are, Hyperborea, Ethiopia, and finally back home. The Greek heroic pattern is almost as archetypal as Joseph Campbell's monomyth of the hero's journey. Let's look at seven disparate heroes from Greek mythology through modern times. Orpheus, Psyche, King Arthur, Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, the Invictus Persona, Aragorn from The Lord of the Rings, and the comic book film hero Iron Man. Descended from the gods, well, Orpheus, his mother was one of the nine muses. Psyche, was, while she wasn't descended from the gods, she married the god Eros and was granted immortality. King Arthur, both of his parents were royalty. His father was a king. His mother was a queen. 
Darcy, while he himself does not hold a title, he is related to Lady Catherine de Bourgh, and his extreme wealth certainly places him in a much higher status than those around him. The Invictus Persona, the poet William Ernest Henley follows the rule of Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Thus, this thinker declares that he is similar to the great I am in Exodus 3, and therefore nearly immortal. Aragorn is the son of a long line of kings and friend to elves. An Iron Man's father was extremely wealthy, a king of the weaponry industry with a supernatural ability to create new weapons, a talent that his son inherited. Prophecy. Prophecy, which demands that we look at certain truths that cannot be overturned. For Orpheus, the truth, the prophetic truth, is no one can escape the clutches of death. Orpheus does journey to the underworld, trying to free his wife Eurydice from the clutches of death. He is not himself willing to die to be reunited with her. Even though he's allowed to bring her back to the upper world, he looks too soon, thus breaking the one demand he had to follow. Psyche, her future husband, is a monster whom neither gods nor men can resist. To avoid the prophecy, uh, Venus wanted Psyche to complete four tasks um, in fulfillment of the prophecy. Eros, the god who she's afraid to look at, finds her, awakens her with a kiss, takes her to Mount Olympus where she's granted immortality. No one can resist love. And so, therefore, the prophecy, a monster whom neither gods nor men can resist, it's love. Arthur. There are several prophecies occurring during the Arthurian cycle stories. Arthur is best known as the once and future king, a prophecy which is yet to be fulfilled. That's an interesting take on prophecy, isn't it? Requiring the story to reach into the future and offer hope. Darcy. Well, Austin begins her novel with the first line. A single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Darcy was focused on the unmarried Bingley sister, certainly not a good choice for a wife, but she is the sister of a good friend. Fulfillment of the prophecy, he falls in love and marries Elizabeth Bennet. For Invictus, the prophecy is the menace of the ears, which means eternity. The poem doesn't have enough information to provide an avoidance of the prophecy. We have the fulfillment, though, to be master of your own fate. Aragorn. Prophecies with fulfillment in the famous poem, All that is gold does not glitter. He doesn't appear to be the king, but he is. Not all those who wander are lost. As a ranger, he seems to have no destination, but he is on constant alert against evil. The ode that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. Well, that's the long line of kings that has not died out and remains strong in body and of purpose. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Well, Gandalf tossed the ring into the fire, then fished it from the embers and ashes in the hearth to read the message, which began the formation of the fellowship. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. When Elrond remakes the sword, Aragorn begins leading armies against the evil minions from Mordor. And Iron Man, the prophecy for Iron Man, Peace means having a bigger stick than the other guy. In the first film, 
the character of Obadiah Stain builds a suit much bigger than Tony's in order to defeat him. In the second film, multiple drones try to kill Tony. In the third film, Killian's extremist effects seem to burn out anyone who comes against him. Fulfillment, Tony outwits Stain in the first film. His best friend Rhodes and Tony take on the killer drones in the second film. And in the third film, Tony uses several of his Iron Man suits to rescue the President and Potts, although Killian manages to trap him. Potts herself kills Killian. Good and bad trait. Orpheus. While Hermes invented the lyre, Orpheus perfected it. His music charms everyone who hears it, including Hades and Persephone in the underworld. But what's bad about that? His music also drives the wild women of Thrace into a frenzy, and they tear him into pieces. Psyche. Her beauty earns her blessings. Good. But it's also her curse, earning her the wrath of Venus. Arthur believes that might makes right. Unfortunately, might can be corrupted. Darcy. His pride makes him behave in honorable ways, but it limits his willingness to open himself to new people and new events. Invictus. Sheer determination creates a resolve to face obstacles, but that resolve can be arrogant in thinking that you can go it alone and need no one else, not even God the Father. Aragorn, his humility, keeps him from pushing himself forward until an opportune time. It also keeps him from stepping up and controlling Boromir, who needed a strong leader. Iron Man, his playful arrogance charms people, even as it frustrates Pepper Potts. That same arrogance makes him enemies. The hero wants to become heroic. Orpheus, he traveled with Argonauts. Psyche, she cries all the way, but she goes to the river Styx, and she still ventures to the underworld. Arthur is willing to face danger and death to achieve his goals of a united, peaceful kingdom. Darcy takes care of the Wickham problem without expecting anything from anyone. Invictus' persona does survive the clutch of circumstance and the bludgeonings of chance. Aragorn, is there a time in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when he is not heroic? And Iron Man. Do I really need to explain that one? Descent to the Underworld. Oh, that's easy. Orpheus has to go to the Underworld to retrieve his bride. Psyche goes to the Underworld to have Persephone look into a box. That's one of the tasks from Venus. Arthur, on the night before the last battle, he dreams of descending into a snake-filled pit. Darcy. That one's a little difficult. His proposal to Elizabeth, much against his will, and her rejection of his suit shows his willingness to lower himself for her. Unfortunately, that willingness to lower himself, the way he puts it, is offensive to her. Invictus, the night that covers him, is as black as the pit, which means hell, and the horror of the shade is the underworld of the dead. Easy. Aragorn ventures through the mines of Moria, where Gandalf is killed, seemingly, by the Balrog, a hellish creature, and Iron Man. The first film begins in an underworld of Tony's captivity by Stane's allies. Supernatural Intervention 
Orpheus, Hades rewards him. Psyche, Persephone gives her a gift. Venus is against her. Arthur has Merlin the wizard, the Lady of the Lake, who's a fairy. Morgan Le Fay, who actually hinders more than she helps. Darcy, Elizabeth's aunt and uncle are his ministering angels who tell him about Lydia and Wiccan, which gives him the opportunity to perform the heart-winning service for Elizabeth. Invictus, well, the poem states, whatever gods may be, and those gods have given the persona an unconquerable soul. Aragorn has Gandalf the Grey, a wizard with mysterious powers, very supernatural. And Iron Man has Jarvis, that robot with seemingly supernatural powers. Dangerous Women Eurydice is the dangerous woman with Orpheus because her loss tempts him to go to the underworld. Also, he's killed by the wild women of Thrace. For Psyche, dangerous women, first, Venus, who's angry at her because of her beauty, second, because her son fell in love with Psyche, third, her son is wounded because he fell in love with a mortal woman, and she's vindictive. Venus is a vindictive. For Arthur, the various women who are dangerous to him are Morgan Le Fay, Guinevere, who brings about the fall of the round table. For Darcy, Elizabeth is dangerous for him. His love for her requires him to abandon many of his beliefs about marriage. Then we have Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Lydia, Kitty, and Mrs. Bennet herself, who give him an ugly view of the Bennet family. Invictus. Well, a ship is referred to as a female, and the Invictus persona is the captain of my ship. Aragorn, the dangerous female, is Galadriel. One need only see her understanding of the dread future should she take the ring to realize how dangerous she truly can be. And the dangerous woman for Iron Man is Pepper Potts. She doesn't necessarily have to be rescued, although in the last film, Tony says he fixed her problem with the extremist persona. Monsters for Orpheus, the Sirens, the Wild Women of Thrace, and more. For Psyche, well... Love is that irresistible, mysterious monster. And Venus acts like a monster. And Psyche does charm the three-headed dog Cerberus. For Ar Arthur, the monster is Modred, his unnatural son, behaving in an unnatural, monstrous way. For Darcy, the monster is Wickham, who lies about him. And the unmarried Bingley sister, who whispers in his ear. Invictus, well, we have talon-sharp creatures of circumstance who clutch at him and bludgeon him. For Aragorn, his monsters are, well, where'd I start? Sermon, orcs, trolls, wargs, the Watcher in the Water, Goblins, the Nazgul, and the Riders. Did I miss anybody? And for Iron Man, we have Stain, the megalomaniacal wannabe. Setting vast in scope, Orpheus travels to Colchis, the Simple Gades, the Underworld, Thrace. For Psyche, we have Eros's mysterious palace, neither on earth nor in the upper or under realms of the gods. She goes to under the world. She goes to Mount Olympus. Arthur, well, he, we have the whole of his kingdom, and he even goes into parts of France. For Darcy, we have the Meryton Village, London, Pemberley, 
All of these show great differences in places and habitations for the different social strata. Invictus, well, his world is pole to pole. Aragorn, my goodness, have you seen Tolkien's map of Middle Earth? And Iron Man, oh, he's all over the world, flying above it too. The Greek heroic pattern can be applied to many stories. It's almost archetypal, and it provides writers guidance when seeking elements to add to stories. Remember, the Greeks believed that their protagonists were doomed. Orpheus and Arthur are tragic stories. Psyche, Darcy, and Aragorn, they're successful stories. They achieve their destiny. Stories with a protagonist who achieves her or his destiny are typical of the ancient Romans, not the ancient Greeks. The Right Focus is currently in the series all about characters, from building and presenting a character to relationships, leadership styles, team roles, and special touches for characters. Avoid creating characters who are stereotypes. Reveal their public and private interiors Focus on couples, mentors, enemies, and much, much more. The information comes from M.A. Lee's guidebook, Discovering Characters, part of the Discovering series on the writing craft. Link to the guidebooks are in the show notes. Thanks for listening to The Right Focus, a podcast for writers at all levels, hosted by M.A. Lee from Writers, Inc. Books, assisted by Remy Black and Edie Runes. Our focus is productivity, process, craft, and tools. Music is licensed through Audio Jungle called Background Music Loop. Its creator is Alexander Polishchuk, known on Audio Jungle as Plastic 3. The music comes in different iterations. Show notes and resource links for this and other episodes can be found at therightfocus.blogspot.com. Write to us at linkbooks at aol.com when you have questions, comments, and speculations. We will try to answer you as quickly as possible. By the way, we will not mind your email address. That's rude. If you find value in our content, share with your writing friends or write a review. We're small beans here without the advertising budget of the big peeps, and you can make a difference. And whatever occurs, right on.